It's the 13th of October, 2015, and this is episode 255. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy and Andreas Antonopoulos. How are you guys doing? Hi. Hey, Adam. It's great to be back. <laughs> it has been, what, like a month and a half since we've done an actual host recording, like just with all three of us. And then the last time I think that we talked without having a guest here must have been maybe four or five months ago. It's been a while. I've gotten some comments on it, so I'm glad we're back together. Yeah, definitely. Indeed. So, Andreas, before we get into the news, you've been traveling just like like crazy for the last five weeks. You've been all over the place. Um, as conference season, I'm uh, basically my travel schedule from September 1st until the end of the year is packed. It's going to happen again in you know the March to June season. Those are the two busy conference seasons, and yeah, that's how I make a living. So I'm on the road all the time. I was in Peru, in the Netherlands, in Germany, and now I'm going to uh, California next week. Toronto and a bunch of other things. I've now got a nice page on my website where you can see all of the events I'm going to. And that's Antonopolis.com? Yep. If you can spell Antonopolis.com. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to be attending and speaking at the Bitcoin Investor Conference in Las Vegas at the end of October. Come see me in Vegas. So we have a couple of different topics we're going to talk about today. This is actually going to be something like an old style show, um, where again, since we don't have a guest, we have a couple of different topics. We're going to talk first about a project that we talked about somewhat recently, Monitas, uh, which is the commercial offshoot of the Open Transactions Project, has made an exciting announcement. And then after that, we're going to talk about an interesting kind of uh, Bitcoin feature that has been proposed and is in development at various stages. Andreas is going to talk to us about Check, Lock, Time, Verify. And then we'll wrap up the show today talking about BitPay and an announcement that they recently made and kind of what the knock-on effects of that potentially could be. So uh, the first story we're talking about today is Monitas announces pilot launch for a nationwide transaction platform for Tunisia's postal services. And this is a story that I've been hearing rumors about now for something like nine months. It's been getting talked about for quite a while. Nobody knew what country, just besides that it was going to be an African country, that this was going to happen in. And it is apparently in partnership with the government. And so I I have to say, I'm pretty excited about this. The story that we've heard for so long with cryptocurrency continues to be that Africa and other places like that that have uh, infrastructure, right? They have cell phones and things like that, but they don't have services and they don't have competition could really benefit from this type of service. And so it's really great to see that this is, as far as I can tell, the first government kind of uh, sponsored And because it's government-sponsored, it's more likely to succeed since it's being pervasively deployed as opposed to just one or two outlier locations that, you know, have their individual managers decide, well, let's try this system. This appears to be a comprehensive rollout. Because it's government-sponsored, it's more likely to succeed? That statement just uh, doesn't sit right with me. (laughs) I have questions. I I do. Let's get into it. Oh. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm just surprised. I guess I'm surprised that um, Monitas, which was a company that uh, before I thought of really as as not a company that would do something like make a contract with a government, is doing it. You know, maybe it'll be really interesting to see how it works out. What exactly does it do, do you know, with the post office in Tunisia? Now, that's the pertinent question. You know, just line them up. A, is it decentralized? B, who controls it? C, is it open? You know, those are all critical questions because, you know, whether, whether the government's sponsoring it or not, or adopting it or not, really matters less as to whether the government actually controls it. And if they control it and it's not open and it's not decentralized, then it's nothing new. And if they're just providing a platform and it is in fact open and decentralized, well, that's, that's interesting. I mean, to be clear, Open Transactions itself isn't decentralized. Open Transactions, you know, whether you're talking about the open source implementation or the commercial impl- implementation that they've developed at Monitas, in both of those cases, 
it's a server-based piece of software, and they hope to decentralize it in the open source version. Well, you know, decentralized isn't a Boolean true-false thing. It's a scale, right? So open transactions is far more decentralized than most existing financial uh, payments and transaction systems. Just because it's not a peer-to-peer system doesn't mean it's not decentralized. It's decentralized to a degree in that users retain control of private keys, and the servers themselves don't have to be trusted. It is decentralized in some ways. It's not decentralized in other ways. It's always a sliding scale. I don't think we can just say it, it is or isn't. To be fair, like they were developing these systems with the idea in mind that they might be used by banks and governments and other institutions like that. Maybe it's not really fair to criticize them based on their who their first client is, but I don't know, just something about the post office <laughs> being combined with a type of uh, decentralized uh, technology like this seems a little weird. I totally understand that response. Let me tell you why this is something that is still exciting to me, even with those caveats. This technology, not just talking about open transactions, not talking about Monotos, just talking about this cryptocurrency technology or this new type of financial technology that we've been so excited about for the last couple of years is incredibly abstract most of the time because nobody has done it yet. And it doesn't matter if you've created the technology. It doesn't matter if you have the best system. This is certainly something I've learned over the last couple of years. What matters is are people using it and is it generating better results for them than what they were using before or lacking it, just generally speaking. And so that's why something like this, that's why I'm talking about it's valuable that it's pervasive. If it's not pervasive, then it's inconvenient, right? It's inconvenient because most of the people you're dealing with aren't going to be compatible with it because it's not pervasive. But if it's something where everybody has to deal with it and it just becomes a fact of reality, then the system can be judged on its merits compared to the other systems that they're used to being mandated. So I'm not saying that this is you know, a triumph for breaking away from oppressive governments. I'm saying that this is a good thing because this system will actually be tried out And as a result, we'll be able to learn from that experience, whether it's a good experience or a bad experience. Well, from my experience looking at how software and technology projects get adopted as government pilot programs, especially in developing nations, I speak from my experience growing up in Greece and having seen all of these municipal and central government pilot projects to adopt some technology in a way that modernizes or revolutionizes, etc. My experience usually has been the the government ends up wasting a lot of money putting something into use that then eventually gets phased out and then the new hot project comes along and eclipses it. You know, one moment they're trying to implement e-government and the next moment they're trying to build an online system and the next moment they're trying to do mobile money, and then then they suddenly discover this thing and the other thing. All of these really are plagued by the fundamental problems which you have in developing nations, which are excessive corruption, lack of institutional controls, uh, lack of transparency, and a lot of kickbacks. And so, you know, these attempts at modernization or whatever through technology are trying to uh, implement a silver bullet to deep-set institutional and cultural problems, but call me a cynic there. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm curious to hear, because I've heard Chris Odom talk about the flip side, maybe of of that issue that you just described, which is that, for instance, a lot of the developing world just kind of skipped over the stage of landlines and went straight to cell phones, and now everybody has a cell phone, but they never went through that transitional phase like uh, Western countries kind of did. What do you say to that? Is this an opportunity to kind of just go straight to the future and skip over all those transitional steps? Yeah, but I mean, those projects weren't deployed as government pilot programs to modernize with a bidding process that went out and said, oh, let's replace landlines with cell phones. They, they happened because the phone companies that were already offering landlines at ridiculous costs with three-year waiting lists started also offering cell phones with decent enough coverage and low enough billing that could serve the same purpose. And people made choices in the free market to adopt those technologies much, much, much faster than anyone expected. And those technologies flourished. None of it had anything to do with government initiatives or programs. So that's the problem, which is these changes happen 
or a grassroots perspective. They happen because of the emergence of a middle class. They happen because of the availability of, of market-based solutions. They happen because of imported technology and skills. They never happen because you package it all nicely into a government-run pilot program for modernity and reform, because those never, almost never work. Now, I mean, not to be a cynic, of course, I'm pleased that what they're trying to pilot here is using something that is more decentralized, more open than most of the other technologies they've used before. It may have a surprising impact on, on government. But I'm not particularly hopeful. You know, I don't think government sponsoring or adopting this technology was ever going to be the answer, because those answers are by definition geographically constrained with closed borders and closed systems. So this is a matter of people making choices, not government sponsoring or adopting things and pushing them onto people. Well, but it's not really a pushing it on to people sort of thing. It's not like they're replacing the existing system whole hog. What this effectively does is it provides an additional set of options. And I understand, I mean, like what it sounds like you're saying is that a government project can't be made to succeed because it's a government project. But do you also believe that if something is a government project, it can't be made to succeed simply because it's a government? I mean, like is being a government project a disqualifying factor? Yeah, almost, almost always. always. Right, Absolutely. but I mean, so, but, th but I guess the question is, is government implementation of a project, is government endorsement of a project functionally the equivalent of a government project? Because it's not like yep. the, you know, the Tunisian government is responsible for this program. Uh, Monitas went to them and said, hey, we think this is a good fit for these reasons and these reasons, and you can do this and this. The point is the option will be there in places where people already go and they already do this same type of thing, except now they have a better option than what they had before. If you look at the article, it uh, basically says that transaction fees for money wired through the system through the post office won't be more than 17 cents regardless of the transaction size. That's totally different than uh, the situation they have now, and it seems like it's a better option to me. You may get a surprising outcome. You know, we've seen, for example, in cities that do municipal broadband and things like that, suddenly AT&T and Verizon and Comcast and various other providers drop their tariffs significantly, they drop their pricing by 30 or 40% because of the market pressure of having something like municipal broadband. You know, maybe this forces Western Union or other payments providers in that country to compete a bit harder. If they even exist. But yeah, I mean, that could be accomplished just like a free market where there was open competition. You don't need the government to help like ensure that people have more options. Except when they don't, I mean, like, the, but they don't because the government doesn't allow them to have those options. It's not because those options don't exist. You can't solve government with government. Okay. Well, I think that we're not going to agree on this one. Personally, I want to see how it plays out. I'm not saying I think it's going to be a wild success, but I definitely think that there will be lots of lessons to learn. And I, for one, am excited that we're going to see an actual deployment of this, even in the context of a government having endorsed it and putting it into post offices. BitPay recently announced a partnership with Ingenico, and Ingenico is a company that makes these software upgradable or software running little point of sale terminals, which are the little credit card machines that you might have a waiter bring to your table at a restaurant so you can pay. And you know they'll they'll print out a receipt on a little roll of paper, and they have a screen and a keyboard and things like that, and they can swipe cards. And so these are all software upgradable, and the, the deal here is that Ingenico is adding the capability to display a QR code and receive payments in Bitcoin for merchants who have these devices. So these are deployed in 200,000 of these devices under this deal would now become capable of receiving Bitcoin payments, which of course would clear a big hurdle for most merchants. One of the big problems for merchants in, in any retail business, uh, restaurants, cafes, retail stores, etc., is that you know even if they want to explore Bitcoin and experiment with Bitcoin, they're really tied into a specific point of sale provider 
similar stuff we've seen from other big companies in the space, or Revel, for example, has a bit Bitcoin solution. It doesn't always work very well. In fact, I've been trying to help one of the merchants fix their Revel systems so they can take Bitcoin. But you know, essentially, if you have a cafe or a store, and you have a tablet-based or touchscreen-based point-of-sale system, it runs your inventory, it does your tax reporting, it sometimes even does payroll, it manages your tables and your reservations. These things do a lot of the basic operations in a store, and you can't suddenly just introduce a payment system outside of that. So it's very difficult to adopt Bitcoin unless you do it as part of a point of sale. The strategy I think that BitPay is following is really very interesting, and this could open the door for a lot of merchants very, very easily essentially just by checking a box and saying, yeah, I'd like to take Bitcoin as well, be able to experiment with the currency. So this falls under removing friction from an area that otherwise, you know, even if somebody wants to experiment, it's just difficult. This makes it so they still have to want to experiment, but it's not difficult any longer. It's trivial. And they can do it as part of their existing process and systems. They don't have to retrain all of their staff. They don't have to re-implement systems. They don't have to try to do their own integration. Uh, so that's a really, really big uh, thing for uh, merchants who are trying to experiment. Are you sure about that, not having to retrain all their staff? They don't have to at least retrain them on a completely separate device, because usually what we see is, oh yeah, let me get the owner's iPad, I think he's got some kind of Coinbase thing or blockchain thing on there, and I'm not quite sure how it works, I think there's a barcode. Uh, and That's then, happened to me many times. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, we do take Bitcoin, but the owner isn't here now, and it's really his iPad or his phone or her phone that, that does it. Yeah, that's the story. So instead, if you're using a point-of-sale system that is already summing up the table order, and you just press one button and say, pay in Bitcoin, the training threshold is much, much lower for your staff. Yeah, and if it's going to print out a nice receipt, are those? do those devices actually print a like with a piece of paper with a QR code and the dollar value on it and everything? A lot of times they email it to you. Yeah, they can do a lot of things. They have a screen on the machine that could display a QR code. They also have a roll of paper tape that can print things out. I'm not quite sure how they've implemented the Bitcoin, if they've done it by screen or by printout or both, but certainly they're capable. And there's different models of these devices. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some have more capabilities. But you know, this is great because we're beginning to see the point of sale providers interested in making it easier for their own customers to experiment with this technology. We're eroding away at the hesitations that merchants might have towards uh, adopting Bitcoin, but I guess I still wonder, are there going to be enough customers who want to pay with Bitcoin to be able to warrant merchant even taking a small step to integrate it within their existing payment systems? That's the main conundrum, and in fact, that's part of the real challenge that uh, BitPay has been facing, which is that merchant spending hasn't materialized, because Bitcoin is a global phenomenon, and even though adoption has accelerated, there's not enough density of adoption. So if you have a bricks-and-mortar physical location, it's much harder to find enough users of the currency in that location to make it worthwhile adding something like this. It's obviously very different when you're doing e-commerce online, and I think there you can attract all of the people who are buying with Bitcoin. Even there, it's not a slam dunk. But with brick and mortar, it's a lot harder to reach that density of adoption in your area to actually make it worthwhile. So a lot of these early adopters are really doing it for the marketing buzz, and, and hoping that even if it only brings one customer a month or one customer a year, it still makes them pioneering, and maybe they ride an early wave of adoption. Uh, BitPay has been struggling. Which that marketing buzz diminishes a lot, you know, as it gets easier for merchants to adopt Bitcoin, and as more of them come on board, it's less exciting to <laughs> write articles about or to create any kind of uh, sensation about it. Which is exactly why BitPay has been struggling with financial problems, since they haven't been able to generate the volume of transactions to sustain their business, they've had to make significant cutbacks in expenses and staffing. We've seen over the last six months a series of retrenchments in that company. They also had an issue that we, I don't think we talked about this on the show, but we talked about talking about it, which was they had a theft or, or a hack or something. Their insurance company was not willing to pay out, and so they're in the middle of a lawsuit trying to get that sorted. So I'm sure that didn't help either. 
obviously a business has to be sustainable and people have to be using uh, Bitcoin in such a way that BitPay is going to benefit from it if they're providing the service, making it easier to convert Bitcoin that customers want to pay into uh, dollars for the merchants and providing platforms for people to pay. Yeah, I guess the real issue would be, is this going to be something that customers and merchants both want to use for brick and mortar businesses for businesses in person? Maybe it's a two-way relationship. Maybe having more merchants who have these payment gateways with Bitcoin available is going to encourage customers to pay with Bitcoin, but also having more customers who want to pay with Bitcoin and who request it is going to encourage more merchants to come on board and more companies like BitPay to facilitate those solutions. Yeah, which came first, the chicken or the egg is basically what we're asking here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're both growing very slowly. Exactly, exactly. That's just, you know, that, that seems to be the case. And from my perspective, it seems like BitPay is entirely focused on trying to solve these problems that have been meaningful problems. I agree with the, you know, the density argument and that there just isn't enough local density really anywhere outside of San Francisco. And even in San Francisco, you're still not going to find more than 10% of places that, you know, are willing to accept Bitcoin and, you know, you're not going to find more than 10 places. (laughs) That's the truth. Okay. Well, you go there more often than I do. So I'll take your word for it. But the point is, is that if it's trivially easy to accept Bitcoin and like, maybe you don't even need to do it until somebody asks, and then you, you know, just go and turn it on on your device. If it's easy for everybody involved at every step of the path, even if there are actions that need to be taken, those actions are much more reasonable than if something is hard at this step and this step. And well, you know, these parts are easy, but you have to do these hard parts too. So that's really what what it looks like to me BitPay is doing with all of their services, whether it's taking the volatility out of Bitcoin so that you as a merchant can just accept Bitcoin and just get dollars so you don't have to think about anything you know out of the ordinary at all. They're just taking things that are reasons not to do it and getting rid of them. And eventually, you know, I mean, so long as they stay in business, I think they probably will run out of these kind of obvious legacy to new thing pain points. And then that'll be kind of the real question, you know, what happens then? Well, I always uh, believe that this was not the Bitcoin killer app. I think the marginal value of Bitcoin in this particular space, you really have to be a committed Bitcoiner to have any interest in spending Bitcoin at a retail institution. The truth is that credit cards work fine for those who have them, and in these environments, people have them. And cash is an other alternative that works fine too. There's no compelling reason to use Bitcoin other than ideological support reasons. For the customer, for the merchant, yeah. it might be lower fees, but, but, but yeah, that's again, not much. You know, yeah, they could always do a cash transaction. Or a debit transaction at 0.5%. You're not really going to make a huge difference, especially if there's cost involved in implementation. You know, Bitcoin's killer application is where you have really, really high levels of friction, cross-border transactions online commerce and security issues, all of those are great applications for Bitcoin. I don't think retail, bricks and mortar, physical in-person sales were ever a a great application, especially for the developed world. Maybe in other countries, mobile pay systems, sure, but you're never really going to make a difference on the high street in the United States on people's habits using credit cards. There's no compelling reason to do so. So, I mean, kudos for BitPay to really be taking this approach where they are tackling all of the issues on all forms of merchant processing. And I I have to add, I think it's important to add, that unlike many other successful companies in the space that contribute nothing back to the community, um, that use open source and take out patents without contributing anything back to the community, Um, BitPay is a massive contributor of open source software back to the community. That's important to acknowledge. They've built Copay, BitCore, the Insight server, and a whole bunch of open source libraries. They've been a prolific contributor back to the community. And that's something that should be acknowledged and lauded because there are so many companies in this space that are very comfortable taking, taking, taking from the community, patenting stuff they didn't invent, and giving nothing back. BitPay has struck me increasingly as time has gone on as the most Bitcoiny company that has survived so far. They really do contribute a lot back. I was just using uh, Copay this morning um, and uh, showing it to somebody, and it's really and it's like it's a totally open source piece of software under the MIT license, so you can take it and include it in commercial products. It's a very very helpful thing, and it'd be great if more companies could do that. It's great that they do that. 
maybe they're going to have to find a way to roll it into sustaining their business or making more money with it. It's never been a conflict, though. I mean, that's not... BitPay's financial problems have nothing to do with the fact that it gives back to the community and the companies that monetize and successfully sustain their businesses, they don't do so because they give nothing back to the community. That's a matter of culture and philosophy and, and choice. And I, I think BitPay's doing the right thing regardless of its financial situation and other companies that have far more financial capability to do the right thing simply don't. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by Tokenly and the SwapBot digital vending machine system. If you currently offer goods or services to online clients or customers, change your relationship from one where you're paid after you've done the work to one where your customers save money by buying your services in bulk and in advance. Representing your products and services as tokens built on Bitcoin is simple and fast. Tokenly tools make selling, using, and accepting them back easy and approachable. New to SwapBot at no additional cost are basic bulk discount programs. Now, instead of just picking one price for your token, you can give your customers a good reason to buy as many as they can at one time. They save money and you get paid up front. Interested in some quality San Francisco coffee shipped to your door? Head to letstalkbitcoin.com coffee and enjoy discounts when you order freshly roasted coffee in 4, 8, or 16 pound quantities, redeemable and shipped 4 pounds at a time. Maybe .com domains are more your thing. Early Let's Talk Bitcoin sponsor EasyDNS.com now offers Domain Plus tokens, redeemable for a new or renewed .com or .net domain. Buy them in quantities from 5 to 50 to get a discount, and pay for your domains one token at a time while enjoying those bulk discount rates. You can visit letstalkbitcoin.com slash EasyDNS to quickly find that bot. Tokens are new, built on Bitcoin, and represent an enormous opportunity to build relationships with your customers, marketers, and resellers buying your tokens in bulk and reselling them at a profit. Create your own SwapBot today at swapbot.tokenly.com, and if you want to talk about how you can take advantage of tokens in your professional life or business, email team at tokenly.com. Today's magic word is lock. That's L-O-C-K. Lock. You've got until the 20th of October to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Let's rejoin the conversation now. So there's this interesting feature in Bitcoin that's existed since the first design pretty much which is n-lock time. n-lock time is a field in a transaction, which means it's part of the transaction data structure that allows you to post-date a transaction. So imagine that you have, similar to writing a check, and you have the ability to set the date at which the check could be redeemed. And most people write a check, they write the current date on it. But you could write a date in the future, and if you do so, to a certain extent, most banks will honor that and won't allow deposit of the check before that date. Although, you know, it's not a guarantee, so there's no basis to use that as a guarantee, but post-dated checks mostly work. Um, I, I'm just time, thinking of a couple situations where it hasn't worked for me, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, exactly, because there, there's, you know, there, there's no guarantee. It's up to the rules and policies of the bank, and you're at the mercy of how they interpret it. And they can, and some, some institutions will simply not honor that at all. They don't care. If you write the instrument, it's done. And lock time on a Bitcoin transaction, however, is part of the rules of consensus, which means that a transaction, if mined before the date or block number, that's in the end lock time field is invalid. It cannot be mined. In fact, it can't even be propagated on the network. Well, so this feature is, you know, quite interesting and you could do some interesting things. One of the things that uses this feature is uh, payment channels. The, the current implementations of payment channels we have use n-lock time in order to postpone the eventual settlement of a payment channel that's based on a multi-sig transaction 
essentially writing a series of post-dated checks that can only be cached when you terminate your video transmission, for example, in Streamium, or if you're doing any other kind of metered payment channel by the minute. Um, and this provides an anchor, a time sequence basis for the two participants in the payment channel to know that they can't be cheated, right? So they, they don't need to trust each other. The, the, these transactions can't be submitted until it's time for them to be submitted because the end lock time provides a consensus guarantee that these transactions cannot be used until that time has come. So you use that promise of the network that it won't uh, submit the transaction in order to achieve other effects in, in more complex constructions, combining that with multi-sig and other keys. Problem is that end lock time is not very flexible. It doesn't work as easily as people might expect. It has a number of issues, one of which is that you can't propagate the transaction, it won't be relayed between nodes until the date has elapsed. So you basically have to store it yourself in standby. You can't simply propagate it and then know that it will kind of trigger at a later time. And most people, when they first hear about lock time verify, they think, okay, what that means is that you create a transaction and it triggers at a later date. That's not how it works. Peter Todd has developed a proposal called uh, Bitcoin Improvement Proposal 68 for the addition of an opcode in the scripting language in transactions called op check lock time verify. And what that does is it uses the same field in the transaction, but it actually encodes it in the script of one of the transaction outputs in such a way that you can mine the transaction, you can lock up a value in Bitcoin, and it's only when you try to redeem it that the condition must be met. So it makes lock time work the way most people thought lock time worked, but unfortunately doesn't. And it makes it a lot easier to use that feature to implement things like payment channels. Just to be clear, currently you can create a transaction that you then store locally and will not be propagated to the Bitcoin network until the date is equal to or after a certain date. Not cancel that transaction either. It just it, it is created, stored locally, and it will be propagated at a at the date that is specified, but not before and can't be canceled. Well, you may propagate it or you may not, but effectively, no transaction can be canceled. There's no such thing as an expiration of a transaction. However, what you can do is you can issue another transaction that spends the inputs. You double spend it essentially in advance. And if you double spend it in advance, then effectively you've canceled it. So if you want to cancel the lock time transactions you've issued, you double spend it with a transaction that can be propagated before the lock time transaction for a different amount or to a different destination. And that transaction will spend the outputs, making the locked future transaction useless, invalid, because its inputs have already been spent. And that's how payment channels work. So what you say is, for example, I want to watch 10 minutes of video. I'm going to pay you a Bitcoin for 10 minutes of video. And I start watching. And so what I do is I first commit a Bitcoin. I sign a transaction for two days from now that will give you that Bitcoin if I end up watching the entire 10 minutes of video. And then I watch one minute of video, and I sign a new transaction that supersedes the, the final one, if you like, the settlement one of one Bitcoin, that instead pays you a tenth of a Bitcoin only, and gives me the other nine tenths as change. You're satisfied that if you submit that one first, you get paid for the minute you gave me. So you give me another minute of video, and I write you another transaction that pays you two tenths and gives me eight tenths back, and make sure that that one supersedes the other one. And I keep writing these transactions, none of which can be cached yet, because they're all end lock time in the future, but each one essentially cancels the previous one I wrote. And you can drop the connection and cache the best one at any time and I can drop the connection and cash the best one and get my change at any time. And that way we 
don't have to trust each other. So that's how lock time allows you to do that. You're essentially constantly double spending a future transaction with a more up-to-date one that changes the balance between change and payment. Yeah, one thing I'm not understanding is how is the lock time, the specific time determined? Well, that's an interesting issue because essentially what that means is that you have to put it sometime in the future and then you can work backwards from that time and you want to set that time in the future so that eventually you can actually cash the money for the streaming video or something, right? Maybe yeah. you put it 24 hours in the future and then you supersede it with a transaction that is uh, 24 hours minus one block. Uh, minus 10 minutes, right? So 23 hours, 50 minutes from now. And then you supersede it with a transaction that's 23 hours, 40 minutes from now. Uh, and maybe just before you disconnect, you write one that is locked to 10 minutes from now so that you can actually close down the channel because both parties agree and there's no dispute. But if they had a dispute, then they'd have to wait 23 hours and 50 minutes before they can submit one of these transactions to resolve the dispute. So in that scenario, let's say that you know, uh, you've bought three minutes of video from me, as we've said, could you then go and make another transaction, not within the payment channel, just a normal transaction from that same wallet, assuming the wallet would allow you to do this, that would supersede the entire payment channel transaction that you've made? So that the, I mean, like, do you see the, the vulnerability I'm concerned about? Well, yes. Yeah, so the, the way this works is the, the wallet you're signing these transactions from is a two-of-two multisig. You basically set up a joint account with a person who's streaming video for you, where you put that, where it requires two signatures, yours and theirs. And you sign one transaction that they can also sign for eventual payment. And then you supersede it with previous transactions to cancel it out. Do you think the wallets will remain uh, as they are now where if payment channels are very new and so the only types of wallets out there that do them are basically custom implementations that are only intended for payment channels. I've assumed that that trend would not continue and we would just see payment channels folded into normal wallets. But you're saying that this is like a special kind of wallet that's actually a two of two multi-sig. So do you think that payment channels do not fit in, into normal wallets? Oh, they absolutely do fit. I mean, you could have your own wallet uh, you know, coordinate with a server to create a two of two multi-sig with a server's key um, in order to have the server stream video to you and set up a payment channel. That's not a problem at all. So it just couldn't share addresses? Yes, which in any case, most modern wallets don't reuse addresses anyway, but um, you, could, you could have it so that it automatically funds the payment channel from your own wallet in a way that's essentially seamless you tell it to what payment channel to open with whom and and how much to put in for the initial funding and then you start using the payment channel we're going to see these gradually get included in traditional payment mechanisms and wallets here's the interesting thing at the moment these payment channels are implemented by essentially all of these post-dated transactions using the transaction level and lock time field if the check lock time verify script feature is introduced with BIP68, then payment channels become a lot more flexible. And you can implement a lot more interesting applications even beyond payment channels. Let me give you an example. You could write a multi-sig script where you say, in order to redeem this Bitcoin, you need to present two of three signatures from these public keys. That's a classic two of three multi-sig, right? Or, if 90 days have elapsed, then it only takes one of two signatures on this multi-sig scheme. Or, if 180 days have elapsed, then it only takes a single signature from this key. So you could now create essentially a cascade. It's a single script that says, you know, for this period of time, this is what it takes to spend this. For this period of time, it's a different condition. For this period of time, it's a different condition. And the, the first condition can override the, the other ones at any point in time. But if it doesn't, after a specific period of time, you could have a scenario where, for example, if you lose a key, then you could revert the spend. And if the primary key hasn't spent it, then a secondary backup key can spend it automatically after a certain period of time. Uh, so you can do all of these very interesting combinations of multi-sig conditions, private key conditions, and time conditions. Essentially, your every single Bitcoin output, or little chunk of Bitcoin, now adds 
a whole dimension of time in its contractability and its uh, transaction scriptability. Time becomes a programmable dimension of Bitcoin transactions, and you can now do it on a per output basis, which is fascinating. So on a per output basis. So this is actually using the same transaction for all of those cascading effects that could potentially happen, and and each one is embedded into its own uh, transaction output. Correct. Yes. Interesting. This is the script. Essentially, it's the redeem script for transaction output. And it's just a really fancy one. It's just a really fancy one. It's just a long one. It's just a component of the redeem script. Before you could do things like you know you have a three address which could be a. You can have a three address, which is a time-bound multi-sig or a series of time-bound multi-sig cascades, or any other kind of time-based control. So it adds a whole dimension to Bitcoin scripting and transaction scripting. There's another feature which comes along and is kind of an extension to that, and that's defined under BIP Bitcoin Improvement Proposal 112, Check Sequence Verify. The easiest way to, to describe Check Sequence Verify is where Check Lock Time Verify said you could only spend this after block X or after time Y based on a clock. Check Sequence Verify is a relative lock time. So you can say you can only spend this X blocks or X seconds after the first transaction in the sequence is mined. So now when it starts depends on when the first transaction is mined rather than an absolute time in the future. So right now you could say, with lock time verify, you can say this can only be spent on October 9th at midnight universal time, or this can only be spent after block 377,115. With Sequence Verify, you can say this can only be spent 30 blocks hence from when the original output is mined. That's really interesting because for me it brings up the issue of how is consensus reached on what time it is? Like, How does the Bitcoin network know what time it is or the client that you're using? I assumed it was based on, on just on number of blocks because that's the only way that the blockchain can count, right? Um, no, it's actually... so. Um, there is a consensus-based time metric in Bitcoin, and it's used for a number of things, including unlock time. I had no idea about that. That's really interesting. What is Bitcoin time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's based on the timestamps in the blocks. So a block cannot be valid if the timestamp deviates from your local... So there's a, base, there's a level of time synchronization between Bitcoin nodes. So they synchronize time with each other, and they try not to be out of step by too much with the other nodes on the network, right? And there's all kinds of internet-based time synchronization protocols that can help keep it even tighter. But within the block, there's a timestamp, and if that timestamp deviates by a certain amount, um, then that block is not valid under consensus rules. So you require blocks to have correct timestamps, plausible timestamps, and uh, when those blocks are mined, that becomes a time basis for the consensus rules that other things can be judged by. Now, it's not going to be accurate down to the second. It's going to be a best effort in the approximate time frame, but it allows you to specify the time in seconds instead of blocks, which is convenient. So where are these two features? Right now, check lock time verify is well-defined. It's a finalized Bitcoin improvement proposal. There are a series of pull requests, which are code segments that implement check lock time verify. Uh, these have been tested. Some parts of this capability have essentially already been merged into the core reference client, Bitcoin Core. And the real discussion right now is that there's a lot of demand for this feature because it, it makes a lot of new capabilities possible. And the real debate that's going on is how this should be merged. There are a number of options. The proposed option is to use a soft fork. And a soft fork is um, essentially a voting-based solution that is backwards compatible, where you ask miners to vote and express their vote by changing the version of the block. So right now we're at version 3 blocks, and we're at version 3 blocks because miners voted 
to implement BIP66 in a soft fork, which meant we went from version 2 to version 3 blocks. Check lock time verify if merged this way would basically ask miners if they want to merge this feature to start mining blocks with version 4. If more than 75% of the last thousand blocks are version 4, then you can start implementing check lock time verify. Essentially bake that feature in once more than 95% of the miners have signaled in the last thousand blocks that they accept that feature. Then it becomes a permanent feature of the network. And so that two-step dance of passing a threshold and then finalizing the vote is something that's been done twice already, or maybe three times on the Bitcoin network in a planned vote like this. And so the proposal is to do that sometime in the next six months. So these two uh, BIPs seem like they're pretty core to the expanded capabilities of uh, the Bitcoin blockchain without a layer on top to do smart contracts. Sounds like it is smart contracts. What you're doing is you're expanding the fundamental language of Bitcoin to include what are really new verbs or new nouns that allow you to now express more complex sentences in, in its contract language. So as you add words to your vocabulary, you can say more things and create more and more complex contracts. It's amazing what people can do even with the existing things, you know, as we've seen with these examples of payment channels, etc. One of the interesting things that these two features can enable, especially the check sequence verify or relative lock time, is the Lightning Network. So the Lightning Network, in order to really work properly in its current implementation, requires relative lock time. Check sequence verify, as it's called. If both of these features got merged in, and the, the exact timing is still up for debate, that would then make it possible to start implementing things like Lightning Network, so multi-party, hub-and-spoke payment channels for off-chain transactions, microtransactions, and, and various other applications that we can't do on Bitcoin at the moment. So that's really interesting that you just brought that up, Andreas, because this whole time I was thinking, is there any concern about like sort of the extra data that this would add into the Bitcoin blockchain? Obviously, I would assume that these are larger transactions that would data to be recorded in the blockchain. So this would maybe contribute to this block size issue or debate or issues of scalability. But if it also enables things like the Lightning Network to be able to run, it may be a problem that takes care of itself. Absolutely. First of all, let me say that there's not much debate about whether this feature should be implemented. There's absolutely broad-based consensus. Everyone agrees that check lock time verify is how lock time should work. It's, it, it should be implemented. There's a lot of use cases for it. There's very strong consensus for relative lock time as well. Everybody wants this feature and they've got a, a thousand ideas of how they could use it. No one's objecting to the incremented size because the, the bang for the buck you get for this small addition is massive. It's a, it's a really, you know, it's, from my perspective, I think it adds a whole dimension of time. This is not a simple incremental feature. When you add a dimension, you, you know, the possibilities multiply, right? It's not just additive. So when you add the dimension of time to Bitcoin transaction scripting, the possibilities are really quite uh, astonishing. It's well worth the cost in, in bytes in the UTXO, and it gives a lot of benefits. The only debate right now is what kind of fork should be used? Should it be done in a soft fork or a hard fork? Most people are saying soft fork. Should it be done with the existing soft fork voting mechanism of block version incrementing as an integer from three to four? Or should it be done with a more complex proposal called version bits, where the block version is a bit field and different bits in that bit field, binary field essentially of zeros and ones, and different bits in there signify different features. The whole point of version bits, which is this other thing that's being discussed, is the ability to do multiple simultaneous soft fork launches on the Bitcoin network for different features in parallel and vote on them separately. Uh, whereas now, if, if you're saying lock time verify is uh, going from version 3 to version 4, you can't do another one at the same time. You have to wait until that one's done before you can do another one. Uh, so th that's the real debate right now. It's, it's really a matter of logistics. When, how exactly, and how urgently. And increasingly, we're seeing people say, we should do it now. 
we should do it with a soft fork and we should do it with a traditional version-based mechanism and uh, so not wait for all these other things to, to happen. Does Ethereum work the same way with regards to their smart contracts? Because I kind of had it in my head that smart contracts as we are seeing them develop are really not a type of transaction, basically. A, a different thing besides a transaction. And what this is clearly is these are transactions that are programmable so that they do certain things and respond to certain outside stimuli after they have been sent. There is a significant distinction here, which is that in Ethereum, essentially there are two things. There are contracts and there are transactions. Contracts can process transactions and create transactions. Okay, yeah, that's what I was, that's, that's what I have in my right. head. So what is this then? Because is this smart contracts just a different type of smart contracts? Yes, it is. Uh, you essentially can implement smart contracts through a series of transactions or through uh, capabilities that are expressed in transactions that are combined in novel and interesting ways. Essentially, if you think about it, the transactions are sentences. You have all of these verbs that express promises that the Bitcoin network can guarantee. So if, uh, if you have a, a sentence that says, you must present a signature for this public key, which is the traditional transaction in Bitcoin, essentially the network guarantees that that transaction cannot be resolved unless someone resolves that sentence with a correct signature. These are the trust guarantees that the Bitcoin consensus system gives you. It can guarantee multi-signature validation, simple signature validation, some basic conditionals. It can guarantee no execution before a specific time. It can guarantee that a transaction either gets executed in its entirety or not at all. That's called atomicity. That's one of the guarantees of the system. And so all of these promises, there's about um, 12 to 14 basic primitives, trust primitives, constructs that the Bitcoin network can guarantee vis-a-vis -a, -vis a transaction. And then a smart contract is really finding ways to combine these 14 basic constructs into complex sentences, either by combining transactions together or creating very complex transactions that do new and interesting things like payment channels. So payment channels is taking the multi-sig guarantee, the atomicity guarantee, and the postponed execution guarantee, and using a clever combination to make a trustless bidirectional payment channel between two parties. And we're going to see people inventing new sentences, new smart contracts, by recombining all of these essential promises of the consensus system that are guaranteed to execute in a predictable manner. And so if you have that basic language, you can build smart contracts. The difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin is that Bitcoin's language is much more constrained and limited in nature purposely in order to offer a initially at least believed a much higher level of security, whereas Ethereum's language is much more versatile. And we'll see which approach works better for smart contracts, but I think both can really be platforms for smart contracts. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show comes from Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.